recording. And now it is recording. Uh, so some of the current realities, talking uh, some more about refugee camps, about the wall, about settlements. Uh, we'll show you some interactive maps to show you what the land looks like today. The following week, uh, neither Rob nor I will be here, and Dad's going to cover issues related to health care and water and some more on the refugees. The following week, on August 7th, we'll either do a Q&A class or we'll do some stuff on Palestinian Christian theology, uh, which I think you might find interesting. Following week, I think Dad and I will do some personal stories. I'll tell you some stories of Hebron, which are from uh, my book. And for those who last week were asking for the book, I did bring some extra copies if you're interested. So I'll tell some of those stories, and Dad will tell some of his personal stories. The following week, I'll be here alone, and I'll, and I'll do a talk about uh, reconciliation work. And then the very last week, the 28th, we'll do a Q&A class uh, for, the, for the last session. So that's kind of where we're going, so you have some idea. So today, Rob's going to cover the theology. Thanks very much. Good morning. Good morning. Well, I am a little hoarse and a little deaf this morning. My wife and I went to my 40th high school reunion last night, and the music was deafening. And so we spent uh, two or three hours shouting at people who were this close to us. I don't know why they do that, especially with people with 58-year-old ears. So I'm going to uh, try to work on our 50th reunion, because by then, we will all be wearing hearing aids. and. Uh, it will be very difficult to compete. So I've got a little water here to try to keep functioning. Quick review of what we did last week. And uh, I'm going to stay over here because I was told when I do this that I look uh, distracting. Is that a... So I'm going to move over here. I told my wife it wasn't particularly helpful to tell me that at home. Just saying, that's, you know. <laughs> so last week, we talked about the fact that the way that many American Christians read the, uh, the Bible now about the uh, land of Israel and what's going on there, uh, the way that many evangelicals just assume we should read the Bible. Uh, that God gave the land of Israel to the Jewish people forever, and so they have a right to it, and they had a right to come back and take it again, is actually a new way of reading the Bible. It is not the historic Christian way of reading the Bible. That comes, I know, as a kind of a shock or a surprise to many Christians, because uh, it is so commonplace in America today because of the influence of Christian Zionism. But it is, in fact, a new way. It's only maybe a hundred years old and only popular in America really since uh, around the time of the founding of Israel. In fact, my dad used to say that up until 1948, you would never hear a sermon saying that Israel would ever again inhabit the land. In fact, it was more common to hear sermons that said they would never have the land again uh, because of the judgment of God. So it's really a very new way of reading the Bible. Now that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. But in general, when Christians for 2,000 years have not held a view and we suddenly come up with one, <laughs> it's at least pause for consideration uh, how we found something that nobody else found. But it does happen, and it happened on slavery. Uh, you know, that, uh, you know it, it took a long time for Christians to catch up with some of what the Bible was teaching. Yes, sir? I was wondering this all last week because the, the timeline seems to match. How much of that was a response to the Holocaust? Well, uh, 
Did you do a session yet on the motivations for American support? Of we haven't done it yet. Uh, haven't done it yet. Okay, they, we will talk a little bit about that. The, the Holocaust was a uh, an important factor in the shifting of American and Christian sympathies toward the Zionist movement. Uh, it wasn't the only factor. In fact, I think uh, civil, uh, not civil, uh, Cold War politics had as much to do with it as anything. But uh, but certainly the Holocaust was a major. Uh, impact on people wanting to sympathize with the Jews and wanting to do something for the Jewish people because of what they'd been through. Unfortunately, we've not yet caught up with that same level of sympathy for the Palestinians and what they've gone through. And uh, one of the tendencies we have is to pit one person's suffering against another, which I, I'm not sure is very helpful. Uh, so we talked uh, briefly about the fact that there was one view was that the church replaced Israel, that God rejected Israel when they rejected Jesus and the church replaced Israel. I don't think that's the correct view, but many Christians held that view and it was particularly popular among anti-Semitic Christians. Another view, which I suggested last week was the better view, is that the church fulfills Israel. Uh, that uh, Jesus came to fulfill all the promises and prophecies and the kingdom of God as brought into the world through Jesus was a fulfillment and continuation of the mission of God in the Old Testament. It wasn't a matter of God starting a new religion or rejecting the Jews to create a new people among the Gentiles, but rather that uh, he was continuing that work. And so the work he was doing among the Jews becomes internationalized. Uh, and uh, spread throughout the world and Gentiles are grafted into the Jewish root as Paul says. Then uh, this newer view uh, uh, of Christian Zionism largely arises out of dispensationalism that said when uh, Jews by and large rejected Jesus uh, then uh, God sort of comes over and starts another plan with the church and then eventually uh, he will uh, uh, literally fulfill the promises to Israel and eventually uh, the two will kind of merge back in in the end time. Uh, this view is, uh, is called dispensationalism. I think it's particularly problematic in the New Testament, especially with the book of Hebrews, but uh, we talked a little bit about that last week. So, oh, forgot to click through those. So, the uh, promise to Abraham does say that I will give the land to your descendants forever. Uh, but we talked some last week about what does forever mean in the Bible? How are we to understand these promises? And we suggested three things last week that have to be kept in mind. One is that these promises and prophecies were never literally fulfilled in either the Old or the New Testament. So if that promise actually meant that God was granting the entire promised land that he told Abraham about from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, if that meant God gave them the land forever and that when they came back after the fourth generation he was going to give them the land, then there's a problem because God never did it. So that ought alone to make us go back and look again and say what did uh, these promises and prophecies say and how should we understand them. Uh, we also talked about the fact that uh, Promises like the promise to Abraham have to be understood in context. Like the promise to Aaron that his descendants would have the priesthood forever. But the New Testament says that uh, that uh, priesthood has been superseded by the priesthood of Jesus. And so we have to understand that the uh, promise to Aaron was in the context of the covenant with uh, Israel at Mount Sinai. And then uh, perhaps the more difficult concept for many of us is that prophecies in the Bible always have conditions. 
And we tend to think of prophecy as unconditional and promises as unconditional, but that's generally not the case in Scripture. So, for example, God makes the promise to David that his offspring, uh, uh, the kingdom that's going to be uh, David's and his descendants through Solomon, will be theirs forever. But in Chronicles, that same promise has an if attached to it. Uh, I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong. And so at times the conditions are explicitly stated, at times they're not, but they're always there. Uh, I guess I'm coming back to it in a minute. The, as J Jeremiah makes this point very plainly. And we'll look at that in just a second. I want to look at a, an example then of even though God said that to Abraham, you'll have the land forever, I want you to notice a couple of other passages that uh, come along with Moses. In the book of Leviticus, uh, God says, the land, that is the land of Canaan, became unclean. And he describes the uncleanness because of all of their immorality and idolatry and so on. And says, so I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So he's saying, Israel, you know, I'm giving the land to you and expelling the Canaanites because of how wicked they are. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. So, despite the promise to Abraham, Moses says, God will do to you what he's doing to the nation that's there ahead of you if you don't keep my commands and maintain faithful, uh, faithfulness to the covenant. The same in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28 is this long list of curses that God says I will bring on you if you reject my covenant and go into idolatry and, uh, and uh, immorality and so on. This is not God threatening if you sin, I'm going to do terrible things to you. It's saying if you rebel against me and reject me, then uh, here's the consequence. And so he lists these things. He says, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, here's all these curses, and all these curses will come upon you till you are destroyed. And you will be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. He's saying this to them just as they're getting ready to go into the promised land. So you're going into possession, but if you don't obey uh, the covenant, then you'll be plucked off the land, and the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And of course that happens eventually in the exile when Israel does exactly what God told them not to do over and over and over again until God's mercy is just exhausted. But then there's this interesting statement. God says, and the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, which he doesn't literally do, it's a warning. He says, the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised you you would never make again. See what I mean about promises having conditions? <laughs> so Moses is speaking for God here and, and uh, says, God says, I promised you you would never go back to Egypt, but if you break the covenant, I'm going to do it. And so we used the illustration last week that promises always have conditions underneath them, even if we don't articulate them, so that when you know, I promised my wife at our wedding I would love her forever, that was implicit in the covenant that that would be invalidated if she hired a hitman to kill me for the insurance money. But we never say that, you know. 
Maybe if you have a prenup agreement or something, you know, but we understand that promises are made within the context of a covenant relationship. And if the covenant is rejected and abandoned, then the promises that were attached to that covenant no longer have effect. But you don't have to say that. It's just understood that that's the nature of the relationship. And so that is, in fact, then what the prophets say uh, eventually happens. But Jeremiah makes it very clear that God is free to reverse something he prophesied based on uh, our relationship with him and what he did. And so he says, if I promise concerning a nation that I'm going to destroy it, but they repent, then I'll repent of, the, of uh, what I said uh, I would do. And then he says, and if I promise to do something good to a nation, and they repent and turn and do evil, then I'll change from what I said I was going to do. And so even though that is not explicitly stated in every prophecy, it's always implicit. When God says, I'm going to bring judgment, he's calling people to repent. If they repent, he'll change the judgment that he said. That's a constant message in the prophets. Now I want to take a, a little bit of time today to talk about a better way of reading the prophets. And uh, this may be a little bit of a surprise to many of us, but... A prophet in the Bible is not a fortune teller. He's not a future predictor. When we hear the word prophet, our immediate image or assumption is a prophet is somebody who can tell the future. But that's not what makes a prophet a prophet. When a prophet predicts the future in the Bible, it's because he's preaching a message about the present. And this is consistent in Scripture so that Generally, there are two themes to the prophecies of the Bible. They're prophecies of judgment or they're prophecies of restoration. So either God's going to bring Babylon and destroy you or God's going to bring you back to the promised land. There's two classic examples of this. And so nearly all the prophecies of the Bible fit in one of those categories because they almost all are attached to the exile in some way. And so they're, they're generally uh, uh, all warning what God's going to do if you don't repent or they're promising what God will do after the judgment. And so if a, a prophet prophesies doom, if he predicts that something bad's going to happen, it's really always attached to a message of repentance, sometimes explicitly, sometimes elsewhere in the context. But, uh, but God is calling them to repent, you know, change or else. And here's what's coming. When he prophesies restoration, it's to preach hope and faithfulness. So the people of Israel are in exile, they're suffering, they're calling out to God. The prophet comes along and says, I'm going to bring you back. Uh, I'm going to bring you back from where you're scattered on the mountains and I'm going to give a good shepherd to watch over you and so on. Those kind of prophecies are designed to say to people, have hope, be faithful to God, uh, he will act uh, again in the future. So those are constant themes. Uh, in the prophets. So what that means is when we read a biblical prophet, our focus should not be on the prediction of events. Our focus ought to be on the message that is preached because that's the reason the prophecy was given. And when people get caught up in trying to figure out what event something was predicting and miss the message, they've missed the whole point of the prophecy. You see this all the time when people get excited about end time stuff. And so they all go crazy because they figured out that Jesus is returning, you know, September 1st. You know, so what do we do? Well, we sell our house and we go sit on a mountaintop in Dallas or somewhere. Why Dallas? I don't know, but that's where one of them did it. Or they're hanging around Times Square in New York 
preaching, you know, beware, beware, it's about to happen, and you know, then it doesn't happen, and they recalculate because it was a time zone issue between Jerusalem and the states, and, and then it doesn't happen, and you know, then they don't know what to do, because, and Jesus said, I don't even know when I'm coming back. So, anybody remember the point? Be ready. The point was a message about how to live, not about what's going to happen in the future. And that was always the case with the prophets. The point was really not being able to figure out when Nebuchadnezzar was going to arrive. The point was to hear what the prophets said about why Nebuchadnezzar's coming and do something about it. So it's very important when we read the prophets that we read them in their context. Uh, we have to look and see what was the prophet saying in his original setting and, and then try to understand that message before we try uh, to apply it to modern context. My Old Testament professor at Abilene, John Willis, used to put it this way. He said, if you want to know whether a prophet of the Bible is talking about a situation today, he says, first look at the context then, the situation then. And if your situation is similar to that situation, then you can figure that the prophet would probably say the same thing to you that he said to them. But if your situation is not the same as that situation, then he might not be speaking about your situation at all. And so the point is to see what the message was in that context. What was he preaching to them? What was he calling them to do in the setting where they were? Because generally the prophets didn't offer messages of hope to people who were living in rebellion against God. And so if you're in a country that's living in rebellion against God and you go read one of those prophecies of hope and say, see, God's going to do great things for us, you've missed the context. You know. So it's important to hear uh, these messages uh, in their context. Interpreting a prophecy to apply it to modern events can't ignore the original message or it's misusing the prophecy. So rather than asking if the prophets are predicting modern events, we should ask what do the prophets tell us to do? That's the critical question in reading biblical prophecies. What do the prophets tell us to do? So for example, Probably the most dominant theme in the message of the prophets about uh, what they call Israel to do is the message of justice and with it mercy. It's about what we practice with the people around us. Do justice. So in the book of Micah, which is a prophecy against the kingdom of Judah around the time that the northern kingdom was being carried off into exile in Assyria. I know I'm getting it there and getting a print on my face. Uh, just remind me to move over. I'm a roamer when I talk. So, so, uh, so God, uh-oh. There we go. So God says uh, to uh, Micah the prophet says, what shall I do? What am I supposed to do, God? Do you want thousands of sacrifices? You want me to sacrifice my own firstborn son? And this is one of the most, I think, important passages in the Bible. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus quotes this, by the way, as we'll see a little bit later this morning. That is a very common message uh, in the prophets. Uh, and 
when God pronounces judgment on a nation, it's almost always because of a violation of this principle. It's their idolatry and violation of walking humbly with God. It's their injustice and lack of mercy in treating uh, the people, the cause of the widow and the orphan and so on. Uh, the book of Ezekiel uh, in uh, chapter 16 has, a, has a, a passage we don't read in Sunday school because uh, it is this, uh, it's this intense description of Judah and Jerusalem as a wife who's a prostitute and is prostituting herself all over the place with all kinds of lovers like her sisters had done before. The, the city of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom that had already been destroyed by this time, and the city of Sodom that had been destroyed long ago. And Ezekiel is comparing Jerusalem and Judah to Samaria and Sodom and saying what they did and their prostitution is what you've done and you're worse than they are and you go look at what I did to them because that's what I'm doing to you. In fact, at the time this was given, uh, Ezekiel was already in exile. So he's explaining why God acted as he did to, the, to his holy city, Jerusalem, to his temple. Why did God do this? And the book of Ezekiel is written to explain why this has happened. And, uh, and so uh, he says, uh, uh, as Ezekiel gives this, this is God speaking, as I live, which by the way is oath language, God swearing here by himself. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you, Jerusalem, and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She, now, we all know why Sodom was destroyed, only that's not what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel says this is why Sodom was destroyed. She had pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease and did not aid the poor and needy. And were haughty and did an abomination before me. Now that's not a passage that makes rich countries nervous. We're not paying attention. Sodom was destroyed because they were proud and unconcerned about the poor and the needy. And he says, You're, you Jerusalem are worse than Sodom in what you've done. Uh, Isaiah says, you're wondering why God's not answering your prayers? When you spread out your hands, I hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Spreading out the hands was the posture of prayer. You come to God asking for things in prayer. He says, I'm not listening. Why is God not listening? Because your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Uh, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. And Isaiah says, you're not doing this. That's why you're in trouble. Book of Amos. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen, which is not a passage you want to read right before or after a worship service. God says, I'm not listening to your worship. I don't want it. Rather, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
Hosea, another passage that Jesus quotes. I desire steadfast love. Or mercy is another way to render that. Loving kindness. I want you to show kindness and mercy to others. That's what I desire. Not sacrifice. I want the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And then Jeremiah and his famous temple sermon, at least it ought to be famous. Uh, Jeremiah is sent to the temple to stand in the temple as people are coming to worship. And he declares, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And you just imagine Jeremiah walking into church this morning and going, the church of Christ, the church of Christ, the church of Christ. And he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and uh, your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place, and do not trust in these deceptive words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Don't trust in the temple. Don't think that because you've got the temple and the right sacrifices that everything's okay. The right church, the right Lord's Supper, the right whatever you want to fill in the blank. Uh... He says, uh, don't trust in those words. Rather, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the foreigner, the immigrant, you could translate that. If you do not oppress the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. See the condition? Now, it says, I'll let you live in the land I gave you if you practice justice. Go now to the place that was in Shiloh. Now Shiloh was in the northern kingdom, which has already been destroyed at this time. But early in Israel's history, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where they went to offer sacrifice before Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. He says, I want you to go back and look at Shiloh, which used to be my holy place, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all of your kinsmen. The prophets are consistent. Yes, God gave you this land forever, but you're going to lose it because of how you're treating the poor and the needy and the fatherless and the widow and the foreigner because of your idolatry and immorality and unfaithfulness. That's the message of the prophets. We've got to hear that when we look at anything going on in the world in our own country and I think we have to hear it when we look at the nation of Israel today. We want to know what do the prophets say to the modern situation in Israel and Palestine. They say this. It's what they've always said. They will say it to Palestinian terrorists. They will say it to Zionists uh, destroying Palestinian homes. They'll say it to anybody committing uh, injustice, shedding innocent blood. Uh, this is the message of the prophets. And to get caught up in trying to figure out if the Bible predicted 
the modern nation of Israel and ignoring what the prophet said is to entirely miss the point of prophecy. Now I'm going to pause there for a moment and then I want to talk about the teaching of Jesus. So, uh, any, any question about this? Is that making sense? That doesn't necessarily mean you agree with me. Does it make sense? I am right, but you don't, you know. I'm... Yes, sir. I'm just reminded of Jonah. When uh, Jonah was so angry, angry enough to die, like you said, Yeah, yeah. Jonah's a great, great book about it. Jonah goes with a message that 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown, and then it isn't. And he's mad, and what he does is quote God to God. This is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh, because you're a God who's abounding in steadfast love and mercy and gracious and merciful and so on. He quotes God's self-description in Exodus. That kind of takes nerve, quote, quote God to God. Yeah. After, yes, sir. After last week's lesson, I looked up uh, forever. I yeah. found one in the in the destruction of Edom. It says that no one will ever walk there again, and the smoke will rise forever. Forever. Yeah. Does Yeah, and so the smoke's not still there. You know, that's also one of the interesting. Some of those images. You know, if you watch, you know, a big fire and you watch the smoke rise, you might say that the smoke rises forever. It just kind of disappears up into the sky. A lot of this language, all the language of the prophets nearly, with very rare exceptions, is written in poetry. And uh, you'll see that in modern translations of the Bible. They arrange it in poetry. Well, you know, poetry is often full of images and, and uh, hyperbole and so on. That's why I want to be careful about what I do with trying to literally interpret a prophecy about events today and miss the message. Yeah. All right, let's talk a little bit about Jesus. Yes, sir. Sometimes you get the idea that those people are monotheistic. Oh. Then you hear God's plurality. Tell me what you think about that. Yeah, uh, Israel was monotheistic uh, for about never. <laughs> the prophets were monotheistic. Moses was monotheistic. The people rarely got it. In fact, the whole message of the prophets, like Jeremiah loves the phrase, on every high hill and under every green tree. And that's a reference to their worship of Baal. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, there was constant idolatry in the land. And that's why they went into exile. They didn't, want, they didn't go into exile because they sinned. The law had provision for the forgiveness of sin. The problem was rebellion against God to go prostituting yourself in relationships with other deities and practicing horrible injustice in the land uh, out of greed and power and so on. You know, but they, yeah, they weren't really... The people were rarely monotheistic for brief periods of a, of a reform that n never lasted more than a generation. Yes? I was just thinking as you were citing these prophets that we, because we were the New Covenant, we studied the New Testament so much, we took, did a disservice to ourselves and God when we don't study this enough and realize how patient and merciful He was. He's not the you know, vengeful yeah. God of the Old Testament. Instead, the people were just terribly... You know, evil in God's sight, and he tried and tried and tried, and then he had to take them out of the land. In fact, just to teach them to try to get them to repent. Yeah, that whole idea of the God of the Old Testament is a vengeful God is not what God says about Himself in the Old Testament, yeah, and uh, not what the prophets really say about Him. 
but okay, I've got to talk about Jesus. I've got about 10 minutes left and I don't get to come back next week. So uh, it, it'll be a little while before I can come back, I think. Uh, so let me say a little bit about Jesus. We are concerned about what Jesus says, aren't we? Uh, so uh, if the view we hold is that modern Zionism is the intent of God, that the people come back and have the land, if our idea is God gave Israel the land forever and it was always his intent to bring them back, then we might expect when we get to Jesus that he's going to reflect that that he'll have something to say about the nation of Israel and the restoration of the nation of Israel and the restoration of the temple and the restoration of the kingdom and so on. And instead, uh, we hear kind of the opposite from Jesus. So for example, in John 18, when Jesus is before Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my followers would have been fighting so that I wouldn't be delivered over to the Jewish leaders who, were, uh, who gave him to Pilate. But my kingdom is not from this world. That's as plain a statement as I know that Jesus says, yeah, he's the son of David, but he's not here to establish another earthly kingdom. That's not his mission. That's not what he's about, and it's not what he teaches his followers to be about. So how do we get the idea that there's supposed to be another kingdom of Israel restored in Jerusalem with a descendant of David on the throne? Where does that come from? It doesn't come from the New Testament. It doesn't come from Jesus. It comes from a certain way of reading Old Testament prophecy. Well, that's a bit of a problem for me. <laughs> that Jesus comes along and says, my kingdom's not of this world, but we want to go back and read Old Testament prophecy in a way that says, but you know, God still has to do that. Uh, John 4, about the temple, Jesus said, talking with the Samaritan woman, looks up at their temple up on the hill there, and she wants to know, are we supposed to worship God on this temple or the temple in, uh, in Jerusalem? Because that was the fight between the Samaritans and the Jews. Both kept the law of Moses, both worshiped God, both had priesthood, both had temples. But which temple's the right temple? And Jesus says that the time's coming when it's not going to be on this mountain or in Jerusalem that you worship God, but God will seek those who worship Him spiritually and genuinely. Nothing in Jesus about ever there being a new temple or a rebuilding of the temple. When He prophesies the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, at one point He sees the city and He weeps over it saying, I, uh, I wish you had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they're hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they'll leave not one stone on top of another because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's, he's predicting the destruction of Jerusalem, but there's never a prediction of the restoration of the temple or the restoration of the kingdom. <clears throat> So I want to kind of summarize uh, some of it this way, connecting Jesus to the message of the prophets. Because whenever Jesus addresses anything like this subject of Israel and its kingdom, its temple, and it's not a lot of times that he does, but when he does, there's nothing about any, any new kingdom of Israel being founded at some day in the future, a new temple. Jesus is changing the focus to a spiritual kingdom. He becomes the new high priest. The church becomes his people in which Jews and Gentiles both are a part of his people. And that's the direction that his thinking is going. He's teaching people to, that God accepts everyone. It's kind of the point of the Good Samaritan story. 
people that the Jews hated the most. Jesus makes the hero of the story. And so, uh, so Jesus says, this is the law and the prophets. This is Jesus' summary of the law and the prophets. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He says, the weightier matters of the law are justice, mercy, and faith. That's a quotation from Micah 6. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. He says, that's the more important part of the law. He says twice in Matthew, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice from Hosea. This is where Jesus focuses. It's how he reads the Bible. We want to know how does Jesus read the Bible? How does he interpret Scripture? When Jesus interprets Scripture, his focus is on justice and mercy and how we treat others. That's the summary of the law. That's what the law and prophets are about. That's the weightier matters of the law. Go and learn what this means. Jesus twice is asked in Scripture, how do you inherit eternal life? Twice. Both times in the book of Luke. And every religious person knows the answer to that question. The answer to that question is always religious practice. If you're Roman Catholic, it's the seven sacraments offered in the right church by the right priesthood. If you're charismatic, it has to do with receiving the Holy Spirit manifested in some way, particularly by the speaking of, in tongues. Always by religious practice. If you're in the Church of Christ, it's baptism, Lord's Supper, acapella music. You're in real trouble. <laughs> and a plurality of elders in a local church. We always define who's in and who's out, who's saved and who's not by the practices conducted in our religious gatherings and our own religious piety. Every religion does this. Jesus answers this question twice. How do you inherit eternal life? When the rich ruler of the synagogue comes to him and asks, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, keep the Ten Commandments. You know, honor your parents, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie about each other. And, uh, and when the guy says, I've done that, he says, well, one more thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. I wonder why Americans never have that answer to the question of how to inherit eternal life. Because I don't want to sell my stuff and give it to the poor. I want a different answer. I like my stuff. I like getting more stuff. The other person who asks him, how do I inherit eternal life, is a guy that's trying to trap him. He's another religious leader who comes to Jesus and asks him, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, how do you read? And the guy amazingly comes up with a good answer. Well, uh, love God with all your heart and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's right. Do that and you'll live. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. How can the answer to the question, how can the right answer to the question be love God and love my neighbor? How is that the answer to the question, how do you inherit eternal life? And so the guy, now to defend himself, you know the story, says, well, who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love? 
Because there were those who thought that only applied to your fellow Israelite. And so Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. This is how, this is how you inherit eternal life. You do what the Samaritan did. He ends it with go and do likewise. Those are Jesus' answers, not my answers, those are Jesus' answers to how you inherit eternal life. Keep His basic commandments and help people. It's that simple. And if we don't believe it's that simple, Matthew tells the story of the sheep and the goats. This is what makes the difference in whether you go to heaven or hell. How you treated the least of these. Or Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The point of which is basically help the poor man at your gate or go to hell. This is the focus of Jesus. As Christians, we talk about a Christian response to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What I'm suggesting is this is the Christian response. This is what we need to say to Israel. It's what we need to say to Palestine. It's what we need to say to Jews, Christians, and Muslims in the conflict. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Do justice and mercy and faith. Because God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor is the person on the other side of that line that you don't want to love. That's the message of the prophets concerning Israel. So what you're going to hear the next couple of weeks is going to be really hard to hear with that in the background. I've got time, like two minutes for questions. I'm sorry. Any thought? Yes. Well, what about the predictions in Revelation talk about the new Jerusalem and all that kind of prophecies? That to answer that would take another two or three weeks. Uh, Revelation is terribly symbolic, but whatever the new Jerusalem is, it's something that John predicts off in the future, after the millennium, whatever that is, and be happy to talk about that sometime. But it is a vision in some way of the people of God living in the presence of God. It doesn't have anything to do with the Jerusalem that's here. Whenever John in Revelation uses Jerusalem, he uses it of this vision of the end time. When he talks about the Jerusalem that's here on earth, he doesn't even name it. He calls it the city where Jesus was killed. Uh, Joshua is one of the favorites. In Genesis. And, and Genesis. They love the prophets, the, the promises to Abraham. So that's where they start. And then when you say, yeah, but look at what's happening, they say, well, look at what Israel did to the Canaanites. Yeah, I mean, I'll say I've, yeah. I've had, um, uh, I, I once was talking about what I'd seen in Hebron, what I'd seen in Palestine, and, and then someone said, well, God, I mean, they, they got so far as to say, okay, yes, what is happening to the Palestinians is terrible, but God used the Hebrew people to wipe out the indigenous population before. Why can't God do it again? Right? That's what someone said. And to which I feel like if we have a theology of a God that condones genocide twice because of favoritism to a particular people, we really need a new theology. I think that's a very destructive theology and one that is really hard to fit in with that. Right? It's really hard to fit into that. Joshua is the hardest part of the Bible for me. Far and away. The hardest part of the Bible. It's the top of my list when I get 
you know, in the presence of Jesus someday to say, help me understand this because I just don't get it. Do not get it. Uh, so, you know, it's, but that, but they go to it all the time. Uh, close with this. We all know Leviticus 19:18, uh, love your neighbors, you love yourself. We often haven't read the rest of this chapter. And down in Leviticus 19:33, God says, "When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as you love yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt." That's a word to Israel, to Palestine. It's a word to America right now, especially in this election year. Thanks for your kind attention. We'll be back next week to talk about more about what's currently happening in the conflict and try to reflect what might the prophets say about that. Thank you all. Have you done much study on the Deuteronomist editor? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what...